0: On November 29, 2016, West Coast Children's Clinic hosted a panel on child sex trafficking. We were interested in exploring the ways gender, race, and power impact the child sex trade. This is the second of five podcasts from a recording of that evening's panel. Thank you so much for listening. It is
1: a privilege and an honor to introduce Min Dong Malika sada Star, the Honorable Stacey bulwer District Attorney Nancy O'Malley, and Holly Joshi. I can't think of a group of women better positioned to lead us toward the kind of change that we need. Okay, Min Dong, a White House champion of change, is a leader in our field. She helped launch the U.S. Senate Caucus to end human trafficking, and was appointed by President Obama to serve on the U.S. Advisory Council to end human trafficking. Min is twice a graduate of UC Berkeley, and the inspiration behind the Min Dong Fellowship for Human Rights at the UC Berkeley Public Service Center. Malika Sadasar is Google's Senior Counsel on Civil and Human Rights. Before joining Google, Malika was co-founder of and executive director of Rights for Girls. Human rights organization focused on gender-based violence against young women and girls. Newsweek and the Daily Beast have named Malika one of 150 women who shake the world. The Honorable Stacey bulwer urey is the presiding juvenile court judge of the Sacramento County Superior Court. She's implemented a nationally recognized court model for sexually exploited youth. She is a member of the California Child Welfare Council, commission on the future of California's court system as well. She believes as a juvenile court judge, (laughs) you need to get out of the courtroom and get into your community. Alameda County District Attorney Nancy O'Malley is a nationally recognized expert in issues involving violence against women, including human trafficking. She founded the Human Exploitation and Trafficking Unit, otherwise known as HEAT, in the District Attorney's Office. Under her leadership, nearly half of all human trafficking cases in California have been prosecuted in Alameda County. The HEAT program also ensures that victims are linked to services. And Holly Joshi is executive director of the nonprofit Missy which <laughs> call out which stands for motivating inspiring and serving sexually exploited youth. Missy demonstrates that with the right opportunities and non-judgmental support exploited girls can overcome their circumstances and lead fully empowered lives. Previously as the supervisor of the Oakland Police Department's child exploitation unit, Holly developed victim-centered department policy, and formed the city's first joint trafficking task force with the FBI. Please help me give him a warm welcome. (laughs) Each of you approaches this issue from a different vantage point. Malika, in an MSNBC interview, you said, In the US, we do not frame conditions of rape, sexual assault, domestic violence, or sex trafficking as human rights violations. Internationally, however, we do. It is time to connect to gender-based violence here at home to the global struggles for women and girls' health, safety, and dignity. How does this perspective inform your work?
2: Um, So before I answer that, I just wanna give some praise because um, I did, this work as a human rights lawyer in Washington, D.C., trying to push for better federal legislation. And every time a senator or a congressperson asked, well, what do we do for children who are being trafficked? There's no model. I would always say, no, there is a model, and it's West Coast Children's Clinic. Um, And that's, that's important to acknowledge. Because in this space where there is a lot of despair, and there is a lot of confusion of what to do and how to serve our girls, you all are a shining example, and and I'm I'm honored to be here and honored to be able to bear witness to the powerful work that you have done with so many young folks. Um, So I am a human rights lawyer, and I was trained in that space, and I have always believed since becoming a lawyer that It was remarkable how these issues of violence that are gender-based were never extended to a conversation around what happens to women and girls in our country. You know, I would go to the Clinton Global Initiative or all of these different global forms where there would be conversations around systematic human rights abuses against women and girls, the ways in which women and girls' bodies were used as places of war and violence, how that played out over a 13-year-old child's own spirit and body. And yet that conversation never extended to our own girls in this country. And yet when we look at issues of violence, at the rates of violence, the normalization of violence against women and girls, we are no different than what happens outside of our own borders. The issue of gender-based violence is borderless. And we here suffer from the same rates of tolerating the violence against our women and girls, of normalizing that violence against our women and girls, and of of criminalizing those who have suffered from the violence done to them. I think that in this country, as in South Africa, as in parts of Asia, as in parts of Latin America, wherever you travel in the globe, there are mothers that I have spoken to I had a long conversation years ago with a mother from South Africa who talked about how she did not know how to raise her daughter in a place of safety. And I understood exactly what she meant as a mother of a daughter, raising my daughter in Washington, D.C. with the same questions of how do I make sure that there is nothing inevitable about being female and being subject to violence. My question around how do I protect my daughter was no different than this mother's question in South Africa. So it is that perspective of understanding how gender-based violence is not only a problem of the developing countries, is not only a Muslim issue, it is a global issue, violence against women and girls is an American issue, it is an American narrative that we must accept, and that we must be able to have the courage in naming, and in naming that, be able to fight it.
1: Yeah. (laughs) District Attorney O'Malley, you are Alameda County's first female DA. You've been a leader in the anti trafficking movement for decades. What has it been like to be a female leader in law enforcement on this issue?
3: Well, I think it's been a, a, an evolution as a female leader in law enforcement, period, um, over the last several years. When I first became a lawyer, <clears throat> uh, you know, there were mostly white men who were leading police departments, were leading district attorney offices, were judges, were uh, they populated the legal field, and so, uh, but in my law school class, which was quite unique, 50% of us were women, and so I already, I picked that school because I wanted to be in a place where there was an there was an understanding of the value of diversity and gender, more gender neutral. How this has played out is uh, for me started even before I was the district attorney, and as Stacy said, for decades I've worked in this field. But when I was in college, I worked in the field of sexual assault when it was first evolving. I was a volunteer at the first, one of the first rape crisis centers in the California. And I could see then how the system ignored victims, how the system uh, favored the offender, how the system seemed to provide platforms for those who were committing crimes against women and girls, and that all protections were in place for the offender and practically none for the victim. So my experience as a woman, being able to just recognize exactly what Malika just talked about, uh, really came into the field with me. And so when I was working as a sexual assault prosecutor and started realizing that what we were talking about was the sexual exploitation, sexual assault of children, that there was still this invisibility to these girls and children. There was a fear, I believe, of uh, law enforcement to start to recognize that what they were seeing and what we were seeing was child rape and not just throwaway children or damaged children or invisible children. Because it's easier to make them invisible. And frankly, in our society, that was the status quo for too many years. So our efforts over the last several years, and for me since 1996, but over the last uh, 10 or so years, our effort has been to educate our community and to bring a face to the purse to that child. And I will say that we have focused a lot on girls and women, but we can't forget that boys are, young boys are being trafficked also. They present differently than some girls, but they, we still have to be broad enough to look at all children that are being sexually abused, sexually uh, uh, exploited, and raped so it took me a long time in my world of law enforcement to get law enforcement to think this was a crime when i had brought my first case to a judge who i have a lot of respect for and i described the crime he said i described the circumstances he said to me what am i missing what's the crime and i was like my mouth was sort of open like wow didn't you get it don't you get it and you have a daughter don't you get that Uh, and so uh, it took me many years through the California DAs to get them to even um, create a committee, which I chair. Uh, and I had to fight for that because of the resistance of having to own this issue, the resistance of having to actually get up and do something about it, and the resistance of having to recognize that we are screwed-up society by the way we treat our children, and that we have to fix. Because our children are being raised by now adults who were exploited and raped and damaged when they were children. And so, so the, the female part of me recognizes all of this. The lawyer part of me is to make sure that everybody else in my world recognizes it too and that they come together to respond to this appropriately.
1: Thank you. Judge boulware in 2014 you started a specialized court for sexually exploited girls charged with a crime. How has this experience shaped your understanding of child sex trafficking?
0: First, I want to say thank you to Stacy and the entire West Coast team for the opportunity to participate tonight. It is nothing short of extraordinary to see the breadth, the depth, the diversity of who's in the room and who is interested in having the conversation. So thank you again, Stacy. Holistic, breaking out of silos, checking your assumptions, individual and cultural humility. So my calendar is dedicated to youth who have been, they're in the juvenile justice system They have been exploited. And one of the things that I make sure everyone understands is that the calendar is dedicated to youth who have been exploited. The calendar is not dedicated to youth who have been charged or arrested for prostitution or solicitation. And I say that and I highlight that and what it has taught me over the last couple of years is that we have to do. I have to do, my colleagues have to do, a better job of understanding the complexity of how these children are exploited, how they come to the court, how they are um, engaging in behavior that people make assumptions about. Um, For many in systems, and I say systems in quotes, because if you think about a juvenile system, whether that's juvenile justice or child welfare, you're talking about institutions. You're talking about a 30 thousand-foot sort of perspective, and I think we sort of move in clumps sometimes. We think this is the way we handle or work with these youth, and those are your kids' child welfare, and those are your kids' juvenile justice. Those are sad kids, and those are bad kids. So the calendar is really dedicated and focused, um, sort of peeling away our assumptions, peeling away how a youth is brought to the court and understanding Uh, Yes, this youth might have been charged with carjacking, right? So first blush, that's a serious offense. We, We don't need to talk about anything other than this girl has allegedly carjacked somebody on the street. You take a minute, and you peel back the layers of an onion people talk about, and you look at, well, who is this child? How did she get here? What are the supports that she has in her community, in her family? is there a caring and committed adult who is willing to stand by her side and walk through this journey? So it's really trying to look in a more holistic way about who this youth is. And it's not just holistic in sort of a grand sense. Well, I want to know that, but what is it that I'm a judge going to do with that? I'm going to work cross systems. I know that I'm not going to do it alone. I know that juvenile justice isn't going to do it alone. I know that child welfare behavioral health, that we do a better job of serving, supporting our youth when we're willing to come to the table in a way that is different than the norm. When we're moving outside and beyond and across our systems to figure out where did we miss an opportunity to protect this child? How do we give the child the supports, the stability, the well-being, and the safety that he or she needs? And how do we stand beside her, all of the ups and the downs um, to a place where once we let her flourish back in the community. She's able to do that on her own, knowing where to go for resources.
1: Thank you. you. Min, in your open letter to the anti-trafficking movement, you wrote that survivors are critical to the movement because every successful social movement is guided by those directly affected by the injustice. What are your thoughts on survivor leadership, and how has your thinking changed from when you first started participating in the movement?
4: Thanks, Stacy. So some context on that letter. Um, In 2010, I started traveling the country, presenting, training, and in 2013, so three years later, I was already jaded, (laughs) Um, particularly because I was seeing the same things over and over. So this letter was essentially my call and my plea to my allies about what I wanted to see differently. Um, And I would say that when I first started, I thought that Survivor's roles were to be the whistleblowers and storytellers. So the whistleblowers, because the first time I came out and shared my story was I was at a panel and Oakland PD was there. And the officer said something that I was pretty um, upset by because I didn't think that it reflected the truth. He was talking about how a lot of kids are trafficked by strangers. And I was really upset because all the survivors that I had met in my own story was that I was trafficked by my parents. And so so I I was essentially a whistleblower. I said, we need to tell the truth about what's actually going on. I was encouraging other survivors to do that. Second, and kind of part of that, I was encouraging survivors to share their stories and sharing my own story because I thought that needed to, there needed to be a human voice. And while that's true, what I've seen and over those three years I saw is that survivors are being tokenized just like any other movement. And survivors' stories were also becoming, um, I think, a part of what I call disaster porn. So now, what I think survivors' role should be, um, I'm an educator and a social worker by training. So at the core of social work is community organizing. Survivors need to be organizing communities. We are really looking to inform practice and policy. So I think survivors are strategic partners, um, not the people that you invite to panels just to share their stories. This is one of the few that I have been invited to for actually more than just my story, which I appreciate. Survivors also need to be um, thought leaders. So a lot, it's really interesting to sit in panels, sit in academic spaces, sit at conferences, to have people talk about policies, about you, as if you aren't there, and as if there aren't people in the room who are there, and who have equal um, knowledge and expertise about the policies and practices that need to happen. And then I also would say that survivors need to be the exemplars, and I think that's very different than being a token person on a pedestal, you're amazing, you're great. I'm talking about the exemplars of how to be in the world with this issue. We are going to be the ones remembering it when you transition to a different career. We are going to be the exemplars of holding joy and hope with despair and pain. So really looking to survivors for, how do we sustain ourselves in this movement? Because we don't get to move on from the issue.
1: Yeah. Holly, it's weird to be talking to you with a mic when you're sitting right next to me. Yeah. <laughs> you supervise the Oakland Police Department's Human Trafficking Unit, and recently became the Executive Director of Missy. So can you tell us about how your experience in the police department has informed your thinking and your leadership at Missy?
5: Hi, thanks everyone for coming out in the middle of the week. Um, Nelson Mandela said that you can judge the soul of a country by the way in which it treats its young people and its children. And so I just wanna take a moment to recognize everyone in the room for coming out in the middle of the week when there's a million other things you could be doing to recognize some of our most vulnerable populations. So thank you. Really. So. so, my time um, leading the trafficking unit in my, in my 14 years at the Oakland Police Department was um, full of a lot of learning lessons, a lot of ups and downs, and um, really one of the, the biggest lessons it taught me regarding this particular issue is really for us to be awakened and to be focused and honest about the way in which our systems, uh, American systems that were built um, in this country at a time when slavery and oppression were the norm, that those systems are not actually built to serve everyone. And that if we are not intentional every single day, And what we do, that those systems are going to continue to play out the storylines, the oppressions, and the marginalizations that came uh, with the founding of this country. And that is my experience from inside the police department. Um, I want to echo a lot of the things that have already been said, and that is that... um, at the time that i started doing this work a decade ago inside the oakland police department i was hearing tons and tons of outside conversation regarding the um, tragedy of sex trafficking that was occurring outside of the united states and there were lots and lots of um, americans who were flying overseas and giving their time and energy for what was happening and that's amazing as americans that's part of our, our work and part of our legacy um, but at the same time i was seeing girls right here in Oakland, in cities all across Alameda County, experiencing the exact same tragedies. And because the large majority of them were girls of color, we were absolutely not recognizing their victimization. And I'll give you an example of that. When I first got to OPD in 2001, it was common practice, common everyday practice, for law enforcement to locate a a, a female in a car with a buyer And they would be arrested for the same exact crime, 647B of the California Penal Code, which is a misdemeanor offense. It's still there, still the number one um, crime that's utilized in these types of operations. The difference would be that they would utilize their discretion to give the male in the vehicle a notice to appear in court, and they would take the female to jail, whether she was an adult or a minor. And that was a standard protocol. And so those are the types of... um, challenges and the type of environment within law enforcement that I walked into in 2001 and to bring some light and upliftment to my experience while I was there. I did have the opportunity to work with people like Ms. O'Malley and and the ladies on this panel and and work across sectors with advocates to change a lot of those policies and procedures. Um, And and I'm a true believer that in order for us to really impact these large systems that uh, the judge speaks about that have been operating in these ways for 150, 200, 300, 400 years, it's really going to take advocates from the inside and advocates from the outside working together. And those are really the the largest lessons that I learned working inside the police department. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to this podcast. For more information about West Coast Children's Clinic, visit www.westcoastcc.org.